No mai, haere mai. You're listening to How to Love, a podcast about writing in all its forms. Here's your host, Sonia Wilson. Kia ora tato. Welcome to How to Love, the podcast series where New Zealand's top writers discuss their craft genre by genre. On today's episode... I mean, I've deployed all sorts of writing techniques. The first rule is there are no rules. It's being able to see the world from a different perspective. We're discussing feature writing. I sat down with three award-winning long-form journalists, New Zealand Geographic's Rebecca White, zoomed in from Wanaka, freelance writer Aaron Smale, zoomed in from Levin, and The Herald's Simon Wilson joined me here in the studio to have a chat about their work and the work of other local writers they admire. Now, there's a bunch of stories we discuss in this session. If you're super keen, you can pause it right here and go off and read them first. There's a list of them up on our Facebook page, which you'll find at How to Love Podcast. Or, of course, you can go away and look them up afterwards. So, lean in, listen close. There's some great advice in here about what to read and where to find it. Some great tips, too, for all you budding feature writers out there. I began our session by asking New Zealand Geographic's Rebecca White if she could define feature writing for me. Well, I had to think really hard about this because it's not something I've attempted to define um, up until this point. I came up with the fact that it's it's a true uh, piece of writing, but it's not a Wikipedia page, it's a story. It's a really, really good story with lots of detail that drops you into another world for a short amount of time. Um, sort of like a like a short story but all true I absolutely agree with Rebecca that it's a story um, I've I've got a thing I do when I talk to school kids which is I, I have a thing called 10 rules of right club uh, and the first rule is there are no rules um, and we come back to that as the 10th as well because there are lots of things you, you're meant to do um, that will make the work better uh, but um, you can always, as with any art form, you can always break those rules if you know what you're doing and you can always find new ways to do it and, and, and that's always the, always the challenge. Uh, what's a new and better way to do this? Mm-hmm. Anything works as long as it works. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, Aaron, what, what does, um, do you believe feature, writer is, feature writing is differentiated from, say, essay writing or, or news writing in any particular way? Uh, I think it's a, a real mongrel, actually. Um, I mean, I've deployed all sorts of writing techniques in the features that I've done. I mean, sometimes you'll, you know, it'll be you'll be a, a section that you'll have is straight news. There'll be analysis. There's um, interviews. There's observation. Um, yeah. So for me, essay you know, forms. I mean, I tend to draw on whatever tool. I think it's going to tell the story best. It's a narrative, I think. Uh, I agree with the other two that it's, it's a story and you're trying to, um, for me, it's about trying to take a reader um, into an environment or introduce them to a person or whatever it is. You're trying to give them a sense of what it's like to be there or to meet the, the people that you're talking to. So, yeah, I'm a bit like Simon. I don't, I don't, feel like there's any particular rules there's a whole lot of options there 
I, I think that's true. I'm, I'm just thinking back. I, I wrote a story once about transport policy just some years ago, and it was before transport became a thing that lots of people um, are concerned about. And I knew it would be boring if I just presented it as transport policy. So it was about the government. Um, and so I wrote it as a, a kind of medieval fable you know, with knights in shining armour and the, on their ridiculous quests and, and all that sort of thing. The people, the politicians in the story weren't terribly impressed, uh, but I think it got a much better readership. Um, Aaron, this this mongrel form, what is it about feature writing that you love? Uh, the freedom, you know, the freedom to tell a story. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I've written news as well, and it's just the, the straight jacket, you can throw it off, basically. Uh, and you can get the, the big picture. And sometimes, I think there's a, in a a sort of belief in a lot of newsrooms that feature writing is this kind of self-indulgent kind of um, luxury and it's not news and um, not every feature is news but I think it's a way of approaching a news story and you can do things that the news the newsroom that the general reporters can't you know if it's a big issue um, slicing it up into news stories can't really sometimes can't tell you a whole lot of things and for me that's you know you can for example I've done stories on Māori incarceration well everybody knows those figures everybody's got an opinion on it um, but what is it like to you know what you know I interviewed a guy who uh, in jail in Umutaka who was doing um, a sentence for manslaughter and that's not usually a person that gets a platform or airtime or gets to be heard. And so those uh, voices that are often shut out of conversations and quite important conversations, um, feature writing gives you a chance to, to introduce you and to hear from uh, people that are often not in the news. And also people that are in the news a lot, um, you can show a different side or, or, or show a different aspect uh, to that person. So those are just some of the things that I enjoy about it. Rebecca, is, is that the power of feature writing, do you think, that ability to, to put the reader there, to really immerse them in the story, to give them the feel of it, whether that be the feel of the, uh, the setting or the character, you know, the people that these stories affect? I think absolutely the power of it is being able to drop into someone else's life for a short amount of time and sometimes that's the life of the person in the story and sometimes that's actually through the eyes of the journalists themselves who is the person writing the story. But it's being able to see the world from a different perspective and also to, um, be, because that's how it as a reader shifts your understanding, your own understanding of the world because it might be about something that you, you think you know about. Um, like Aaron, Aaron's example of the inmate um, at Rimutaka Prison, you might think you, you know about people in, in prison and, and what they might have to say, and you don't at all. Or it may be about something in life that you didn't really care about and didn't think you were interested in, and the story can take you to a place that you've never paid attention to before. It's sort of like it fills in the blanks in your own view of the world or gives you more colours to see it with. Simon, are there, oh, put your editor's hat on for me. Are there certain commonalities that good feature writing has? Um, yes, there are, um, and they are to do with um, 
a mix of uh, presenting facts and proper information, um, being able to paint the picture, create that world, um, be able to find ways to uh, put the reader in it, as, as both the others have been talking about, uh, being shorter than the writer probably thought it should be because shorter is almost always better, tighter and, and, and uh, a better read. Everybody's um, la- uh, yeah. smiling at yeah. that yeah. comment, <laughs> yes. There are, there are a whole lot of things like that. And, but, but just going back to your previous question... Uh, I have a few happy places in my life, and one of them is riding a bike, and another one is just sitting in rooms, watching what's happening, trying to work it out. I love doing that. I love, whether it's a city council room or whether it's a business meeting or whatever, watching those people over time, seeing how they seeing how they behave, you will never get that reported as news. You will only get that reported as a feature writing or, an, or visually um, in a documentary or whatever to, to discover what it is about those people. And the room isn't always a room. I followed John Key around the Otara Market one election campaign and I watched him stop at a, a vegetable stall <laughs> and he said um, he, he picked up a, some vegetables and he said to the stallholder, now what's this? And she looked him in the eye and she said, it's spinach. And he quick as a, <laughs> quick as a flash said, ah yes, but what sort of spinach? And she, not being so quick but just as deadly, said, ordinary spinach. <laughs> And, you know, there were a lot of journalists there um, for the day. Uh, I had my story. Most of the others weren't even listening to that because there was no news in it. Mm. Uh, But I had my story about what kind of guy he was. Um, It gave me a great insight to him, I thought, uh, and I used it. Yeah. I'm still using it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big part of it, isn't it? Providing some sort of insight into into the human condition. What's the episode? um, You know, look for your spinach. What's the the episode uh, that will reveal, that will unlock your your subject or your character? That's fantastic. Mm. Look for your spinach. Um, Where where would you suggest people go these days, Rebecca, um, including your own fabulous publication, of course, for good feature writing in New Zealand? Because obviously the the industry is changing. Where do you find good long-form writing these days? I find it all over the place. Um, It's in the weekend magazines like Canvas and Sunday. It's in the Herald. Simon Simon is writing it in the Herald. Um, we're about to have magazines resuscitated like North and South and the Listeners, which have been bastions of, of feature writing for a very long time. Um, Metro's about to come back. It sort of inhabits these corners. And then there are places online like um, sometimes the spin-off publishes long features. Sometimes um, I've read a lot of really interesting work lately on Etangata, um, a website that publishes stories every Sunday. There's even on the Pantograph Punch I was reading lately a uh, long feature that I really liked. Let's, let's just add, because Rebecca won't, that New Zealand Geographic, which she edits, is, in my view, the preeminent place to find great feature writing in this country right now. They more often than not, they win the award, the national award for it. Uh, it is a, a place for extraordinary writing that's obviously about environmental issues and the, and the the country we live in, but goes way beyond that into a whole lot of social issues and a whole lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Great writing, extraordinarily good design, photography. Um, you know, it's a it's a jewel. It's a, and you know everybody should be buying New Zealand Geographic. Let's talk a little bit now about the technicalities of of, of writing. Um, is there such a thing? As bad feature writing, I'm sure there is, but do we see it because it just doesn't get published if it's if it's bad? Um, and are there traps that writers often fall into that you guys see as as editors sort of 
general mistakes young writers or any writers make? Simon. <laughs> I, I, He's laughing and not. Yeah, um, th- there's lots of bad writing around. Of course there is. And, you know, good editors will, will not publish it. Uh, I always used to think that um, there were different sorts of responses from writers when you said this isn't good enough. And one of them, mostly in my experience, uh, the writer would say, I understand what you're saying. I think I knew there was a problem and, and they will get it and they'll work on it to make it better. And you might work with them to do that. Um, sometimes they will say that's outrageous. You can't possibly be questioning the quality of what I do. And 24 hours later, they'll come back to you and say, actually, you were right. Um, and that's fine too. You know that's coming, actually. You can see it in the way they're doing it. Um, and then there are a few people who say, no, it's outrageous. This is as good as it can be. And um, how dare you? Um, and you know that you're not going to work with them again. Um, so it happens that way too. Mm-hmm. Um, in mm. in fiction and novels and short stories, um, you know, there's a sort of a an adage that character is king. Rebecca, is that the same for feature writing as well? I would modify that and say that the story is king in the sense that I, I would define bad feature writing as as boring writing. Yeah. If you're if you're yeah, bored, it's, it's a bad feature, and. The, the main problem that, that I see is that people either pitch or write stories that are actually um, Wikipedia pages and not stories. They're subjects, not stories. There's no story attached to the block of information that they want to give you. And as far as I'm concerned, a mark of a good feature is that you don't even realise that you're learning something. It's, it's, you're reading a good story. You're brought along on the journey of the story. Mm-hmm. How important is detail in feature writing? You know, the, the fact that the man on the side of the road is smoking Port Royal tobacco, mm. not just tobacco. <laughs> the fact that the gumboots are white. The fact that there's four seagulls looking on, not three. What does that sort of level of detail, which seems unimportant, what does that add to the story, Aaron, do you think? Uh, yeah, I think people... One of the things that you can do as a writer, whatever form it is, is you, you're getting inside people's heads. And with feature writing, for me, I'm a photographer as well, and I, I think it's about using all the senses and creating an image or a sound or whatever it is in, inside somebody's head. And so the, the more specific the detail, the more um, the reader gets it, you know, it is there with you. Um, Yes, so I think it's, I mean, there was a detail in one of Simon's stories about he, he couldn't find strawberries for the festival and his, the elastic yeah. in his, his pants had gone. <laughs> it's like, it was just like a, a completely, in one sense, a completely irrelevant detail. And I just kind of laughed out loud because it just told me something about this guy that you couldn't say any other way. I mean, he was careless about his you know the elastic in his pants um and if you and put it if you if you if i'd written it as he was careless about his clothes or his pants didn't fit yeah. properly or whatever that that just wouldn't give it to you in the same way at all would no. it? it's, uh, yeah. it's sort of that show don't tell yes. thing yeah. coming through but isn't it, it? it has to be it has to be very specific detail for yes. instance i get a lot of very cliche descriptions i can't tell you the number of times the sea has been a glassy mirror <laughs> that kind of thing <laughs> It has yeah. to be a detail that's a new observation that allows you to see something you know in a different way, or it has to be a detail that contributes to, as Aaron said, your understanding of a person, or there, there has to be a point to it. Yeah. I find a lot of American um, writers, they just, there's almost like a paint by numbers kind of formula that they're following, and they'll just ladle on all this detail right up front, and it's like, 
really? Yeah. You know, yeah. what was the point of that? And yeah. it's, um, there is I mean, such a thing in, as too much, I suppose, isn't there? That's right. Yeah. You can paint forever and not tell the story mm. because the story has to drive it along. It absolutely does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it comes to my other definition of a really good feature, is that, which is that you can't take any words out of it without changing the meaning. I can almost always take words out of a story, but the best ones I can hardly take any words out of. You, you shouldn't be able to get rid of a detail without really losing something intrinsic to your understanding. I always, I always tell writers that um, it will be better if it's 10% shorter and probably if it's 20% shorter, and I always think to myself, but I'm the exception to that rule. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually know I'm not. <laughs> No, that's right. Nobody is, and it, it takes a discipline to do it. But when you give yourself an artificial measure like that and say, okay, I've got to cut that many words out, yeah, so therefore you go through every paragraph and tighten it and tighten it and take out those adjectives, and we're, I've already said that, I don't need to repeat that, all those things. Um, it is it is remarkable how much you can tighten up almost every writer's story. Okay. We, we, sorry, Aaron, go ahead. Sorry, just on that issue of length and what's a bad feature. I mean, one of the things I noticed when I was on the other side of the desk was that a lot of writers who are good journalists um, and have never had the opportunity to write a feature, often they'll just, what they're writing is a a stretch news story. I mean, Mm -hmm. there was one particular journalist, very, very good journalist, and um, she could write colour, but she would have a colour intro and then it would just turn into an extended feature. And then it would just drop off this cliff as news stories do. And um, trying to, you know, reshape that was a bit of a problem because she was very experienced and, you know, more experienced than I as a journalist. And, yeah, many journalists come to feature writing just thinking you're you're just writing a a 2,000-word news story. It's not. Yeah. There's there's being a good journalist and then there's being able to write beautiful sentences and... It's almost a rare case when, when both of those things come together and they're two very important skills that often people don't have I, I, both I, of I, those. I regard it as literary journalism. I, I regard it as a, as a craft uh, where you are attempting to use the skills of literature to, to impart your subject and give people uh, a depth of meaning and, and, and all of that, but also to give them pleasure. I, wa- I always want people to say to themselves, I really loved reading that, and I'm going to go and tell someone else they should read it too. Mm-hmm. That's that's always been the dream that that's what my readers are thinking, and it's actually easy to say, incredibly hard to do. It seems like it should be a natural transition for um, a news journalist to be able to directly go into writing features because it's sort of the same. It's published by the same industry, but in fact, it's completely different. And I often think that if you are a news journalist and you're, you're changing over to features, then what you need to do is spend some time studying fiction or mm-hmm. writing creatively because that's the different, there's a different set of skills involved as well as reporting. Let's talk about having an angle. Do you always know what your angle is when you're starting off? Does it change after you've gone into the field? And do you get yourself into trouble if it does change because perhaps you've pitched your story to a person who you're wanting to take part in it as coming from a certain angle and then you realise your angle has to change and it's not the story it was but you've given the assurance to people who you are dealing with that this is yeah. the line you're taking on 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 the story you my experience you you often do start with an angle but you've got to try and 
retain the, uh, your mind in an open enough um, way to, to uh, recognize that it's going to change because it will change. My, my um, most self-humbling experience for me as a feature writer was um, 10 days before the re-election of Len Brown as the mayor of Auckland in 2016, uh, I wrote what I thought then was one of the best features I've ever written in my life. I've been tracking him on the campaign trail, I've been to so many meetings, I'd interviewed him many times, and I'd been watching him in council meetings and so on for years before that. I thought I had a really great story. And then he got re-elected, and just days later, we all discovered that he had been having an affair uh, with someone involved in council that was a very sordid experience. I didn't know my subject at all. <laughs> I actually didn't know that. Nobody knew it, but I didn't either. I thought I knew him. I thought I had the angle. I'd gone in with the thing. I thought I'd nailed it. Yeah, but I was wrong. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you've got to know that might always happen to you. One of the most important parts of writing a feature, and they're all important, um, is writing that stand first, that summary sort of couple of sentences that encapsulates the story itself and and sometimes that can actually you know sometimes I'll do that at the start sometimes I won't do it until right at the end when I actually have figured it out but it, um, getting that right can actually cut away a whole lot of material that's irrelevant to that central kind of proposition I don't really like that word but it's different from a news angle where it's a real hard either or kind of equation, a polarised sort of a um, angle, whereas feature writings, there's a whole lot more nuance. And But I do find that that's, writing that stand first can actually, um, can, is, is really helpful in the editing process in terms of what is the story about. Um, yeah. Because it's, it's not always point. that obvious, is it, what the story no. is? Stories don't arrive fully formed. I end up often having to um, reverse engineer stories in the sense that I have an issue that I want to cover that I think is really important, but I, I don't have a story for it yet, and sometimes it takes me a couple of years to find one. And an example of that is the, the story about shags that I'll talk about later which I had, I, I knew that there was, a, there was an issue that I, I wanted to, it was important, and I had this portfolio of photography, but you can't just write a story about something as boring as a shag without having a good story to attach to it. And it was probably two years between me knowing that I wanted to talk about it to there being an instance of some scientists getting together to create a fake shag colony in the Hauraki Gulf, which is an amazing um, thing to do, that there was then something that we could use as a narrative to be able to discuss this. And, and that happens with a lot of different things. Um, for instance, climate change is basically the most boring subject yeah. that there is. It's really, really hard to find stories to attach to it. It's, that's absolutely true. There's another thing in relation to what Aaron said about the stand first. I mean, if you work in a newspaper, they'll write the stand first. They'll rewrite yours anyway. So that's, you know, dispiriting always. <laughs> but you spend a lot of time as a writer on your first page, your first few hundred words and your first paragraph, uh, because you know that that's how you're setting up uh, your mind to go through the rest. You know that for the reader, uh, if that doesn't work, they're going to stop reading because that's where they'll stop reading probably. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that stuff's really important. But having said that, it's not uncommon for, by the time the story is written, for you to realise you don't need the first page. Actually, that wasn't the right place to start. You might spend a lot of time doing something that doesn't end up in print. And I always think it doesn't matter 
Um, you might be, you might want to use that in another story, another time, so, somehow. Um, but it doesn't matter if you spend time at a computer and you're not being productive, or your uh, the work you write isn't good enough and you discard it in the end. That's all very productive time. It's quite often, when you're writing, you've got to actually clear your mind. You've got to get that stuff out of the way, and that takes you to the to the heart of what you need to do. So I always think I didn't waste the day if it wasn't productive in that way. Mm-hmm. I always think I, I, I needed I to go through it. I, yeah, that's what I thought. Clearing the pipes and getting the rubbish out. The previous editor of New Zealand Geographic, James Franken, always said, oh, writers spend the first 500 words clearing their throats. And yeah. the experienced ones <laughs> know to delete mm. that before yeah. they send in the story. That's right. But some people don't, and you delete it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and it's so hard to see the wood for the trees sometimes, isn't it, when you're the writer, when you've read your intro over and over again mm. and you can't see it anymore. That's when the editor comes in and can just yeah. see something so clearly that you couldn't because you're too close a, or you know too much. There's a quote I like about writing which is Thomas Mann, the German novelist, who said writing is something that people who find something, writing is something that people do that they're the people who find writing harder than everybody else. <laughs> he put it more elegantly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, often, I often think of that. <laughs> <laughs> so I did ask you all to sort of um, come armed with a few good examples of feature writing so that we can do a sort of close reading session on a few pieces. Um, Aaron, let's let's start with some of your choices. You, you've, um, when I asked for some good examples of feature writing, you've suggested um, a couple of pieces by Tess McClure. There's, um, not sure which might have been Vice, was it, or Radio New Zealand, actually. She wrote one called Cut Off from the World uh, post the Kaikoura, um earthquakes. And it's it sort of, I love it because it's got this, it's, it's, it's very, there's very few words involved in it, actually. It, it's, it's very tight. The, but the first couple of, um, the first couple of pars, it begins, Rodney Clark is sitting on the side of State Highway 1, working his way through a pack of Port Royal tobacco. Boulder at his back, white fishing gumboots crossed in front of him. He's reclining in the left-hand lane of what used to be one of the South Island's busier highways. I mean, it's very brief, but it's so characterising, isn't it? And you immediately care. You immediately care as a reader who this guy is, what he's looking at, and what is going on around him. Yeah, the thing I... uh like about it it's, it's a one source story you know it's it's this massive event i covered the christchurch earthquakes i've kind of covered the kaikura earthquake from the wellington end and just the magnitude of destruction and disruption and all the rest of it is actually really hard you just get kind of your eyes start to glaze over how do i tell this bloody story and and here she's done it with this one guy um because she touches on so many things, the tourism, the, the, the road being wrecked, the um, everything. She, she kind of gets so much into that story through one character and one business sitting on State Highway 1. And that, that detail and that intro that you've just read, I mean, I was, I was hooked straight off from that and, and read it right through, straight through. And it's, it's the perfect example of exactly the right details. You get so much information just from that first paragraph. 
don't even yeah. notice it. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's um, remarkable, actually. It's, it's not just that it's he's smoking, it's that it's Port Royal, so that tells you something. It's rollies and it's that kind of rolly. But he's working his way through the packet, which means he's smoking seriously. He's lighting one off the, you know, whatever it is. And so that tells you something else about him. But it also tells you as the reader in that first paragraph to pay attention mm. because the writer is going to tell you things and they're going to be said in just phrases that you might think are throwaway phrases, but they're not. So it zooms you into a deeper reading of the story. And that that's fantastic. Aaron, to move on to your own work, um, for those of you out there that haven't read any of Aaron's work, I, I really implore you to go and look it up. It is, it is beautifully written, but also incredibly um, worthy. It touches on areas of society that perhaps many of us don't experience, but we should certainly know about it and arm ourselves with that information. One of your pieces, it's called A a Poor Outcome, Māori, Poverty and the Struggle for Survival. It begins on the main street of Kaiti in Gisborne and introduces us to a character with these lines. Tuta Ngārimu has the physique of a bouncer, the demeanour of your favourite uncle. How did you find this guy? Was he always the anchor for your for this story? One of the tricky things about the story was, you know, I knew the subject was, in a general sense, about poverty. Um, and how do you show that while still giving people dignity? You know, it's I, I didn't want it to be poverty porn. And... Tuta was just an absolute gift. I mean, I, I, th- I found that Mungle Mob members actually make really good economists for some reason. Um, but he, it was the story of uh, they started this chess club and it was a way to help. And I asked him why, and he said, well, there's kids committing suicide. And it's like, bang, right there, you've got this quite startling sort of horrible thing happening. Um, and yet they've got this chess club to try and uh, teach kids how to plan and how to think through some of the difficulties that they're facing. So there was this kind of, um, it was like this metaphor and way to actually show some of the things that these kids are facing, these serious challenges, and, and yet trying to help them find a way to actually to deal with them. And But yeah, Tutu was just as I say, a gift. Um, in terms of talent, he was it, really. And, and him laying out that big picture, which was what I was trying to do, um, he, he did it for me. <laughs> he, he, gives yeah. the, he gives those stats, don't they, that would be boring if they came from you at the top of the story. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which is not to say that they are very important stats about terrible Māori suicide rates, um, you know, dire and serious, and they're, they're sort of facts that must be known. But if you just threw them straight at, at readers, they wouldn't be made real. They wouldn't be attached to actual people or, or palatable or memorable. But but Tutor did that for you. He gave yeah. he spouted the facts and then of course your reportage backs them up. It, it works beautifully. Yeah, and it's trying to find the people or the incident or the anecdote that can kinda encapsulate a lot of the issues you're trying to think you know, trying to tell in the story and then you can unpack it and um and through those people, you know, rather than, as you say, just a sort of fact dump that, you know, is not going to interest anybody. Um, 
you know, and, and him being able to give examples of what that meant, you know, some of those unemployment figures that kicked in around the late 80s, um, you know, what did that mean? Um, and he could tell you what that meant and he'd been there himself. Um, so, yeah, I was just, um, you know, I won an award for those stories that I feel like I should have given to Tito. <laughs> Um, because it's it's about finding those people who can tell the story for you in a sense. Um, you still have to message and, and shape the narrative, but if you've got people like that talking to you, well, you're halfway there. Mm. There's a certain amount of serendipity sometimes, isn't there, as well as hard work <laughs> to make those stories sing. Um, uh, that, that story- can I just say something yeah. about Aaron's work, um, which is that what I like about it is that he clearly has worked to make it compelling for the reader. And a mistake that a lot of feature writers make is thinking that because something is important, then it's automatically compelling and interesting. And that just isn't the case at all. And, and, and with Aaron's subjects, it's really difficult to make compelling because it's terrifically important, but it's so tragic that people often shy away from subjects like that. But by bringing people into the story through those characters, it's, it's giving us a, a helping hand to be able to encounter those subjects. I really admire that. And, and, and at the same time, he hasn't rested on that. He is an authority in this country on welfare and it's the way in which it interacts with the poor, with Māori in particular. Uh, so knowing his subject at the depth that he does is is goes with that storytelling ability and it's, it's, um, it's terrific to have those both. So that particular piece we were talking about, as I said, is called A Poor Outcome, published on uh, Radio New Zealand. But if um, don't worry, we will put up all these stories that we're talking about, we will put up um, on our Facebook page so that there's reference there if, if you're not listening with a pen and paper <laughs> in hand. Um, Aaron, just, just one more thing before we um, move on to some other stories. You don't tend to put yourself in your stories, do you? There's no I in your pieces, is that a conscious decision or just uh, the way it comes uh, out? <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, I had a um, very good sub-editor when I starting when I started writing features in American, uh, Debbie Sloan. I think she's now at White Castle Times, and brutal sub-editor, um, great lady. But yeah, she really um, <laughs> so she's kind of sitting on my shoulder <laughs> to this day. But um, I, I guess I'm just a little bit old school and and, and and that's unless there's a good reason for you to be in the story, stay out of it. Um, and I do I do admire writers that can, um, that do put themselves in there in a way, but some there's some writers that do it and it's kind of, I just find it a bit, uh, yeah, egotistical really, some of it. But I mean, I'm the sort of cameraman, if you like. I'm taking you there. I'm framing the shot, but you don't need to have me in the shot, you know. Okay, Rebecca, let's have a look at some of the pieces that you suggested we talk about today. And one you mentioned earlier that um, by Kate, reporter Kate Evans for New Zealand Geographic on the, on the spotted shag, and apart from a, some beautifully written sentences in that piece, why does that stick in you? Why does that work in terms of staying in a reader's mind? I, I think it's successful because um, it's a bit funny uh, and a lot of people are too nervous to make stories about important environmental matters a bit funny and 
the scientists who made this project are, are hard cases. There's one of them who's says, oh, I've got loads of experience building fake shaggeries, and, and he's, he's joking, he's never done it before. It's all a big experiment. <laughs> shaggeries, <there>. yes. <laughs> shaggeries is where a shag is. And then she goes on to talk about how um, even in seabird research, um, shags are terribly untrendy. Nobody wants to study a shag. They're not very popular. Um, they don't really um, seem to get up to much. Um, but it becomes through that the story about, hey, actually, there used to be tons and tons of these birds in the Hauraki Gulf. And it, it's connected to this phenomenon called um, shifting baselines where environmental change happens so slowly that um, it, it's a bit longer than a person's lifetime. And so you don't actually notice lifetime for lifetime that stuff is dramatically different from even 50 or 60 years ago. And so it's the birds become this... Um, clue about how things have become different between between land and sea and how those realms are connected. I thought it was a really clever way of um, sort of almost tricking people into caring about something they might never have looked twice at, which I feel is the real function of New Zealand Geographic to, to help people do that. Mm-hmm. There's another story you mentioned that is completely different in tone and subject matter, and that's um, Greg Bruce writing for Canvas, it is he writes for, isn't it, um, about the cult of the Lees Mills gyms and basically um, uh, I was going to say first person account of having a gym membership but actually it starts in second person that piece doesn't it <laughs> um, which is hard really- hard to do well but he nails it and then and then sort of jumps back to first person halfway through now that you know in my mind shouldn't necessarily work can you tell me why it does <laughs> I think it's a lovely um, acknowledgement of the universalness of this experience and it's really a story written for a particular kind of reader that is familiar with the thing that Lesville is in urban New Zealand and so it starts off with the acknowledgement that you've probably heard of this and you know a bit about it and and moves into this um, moves through almost making fun of it to acknowledging the meaning that it has for people and then comes out the other end of, of of him kind of turning away from it. And there's this wonderful line where he, he, he goes to quit the gym at the end of the story. And, and they ask him why he's quitting. And he says, I've, I've achieved everything I wanted to achieve. And ah, oh, you've, you, you've achieved all your goals. <laughs> this thing that you'd never, as a, as a gym goer, would imagine saying, he sort of breaks this um, you know, etiquette of how you are supposed to think about your body and what you're supposed to do with it. It's very clever. So, and so many lols in that piece, weren't there? <laughs> I, I love giving it to people and then watching them giggle as they read it. It's a real <laughs> um, Rebecca, can I ask you about your own writing now? Um, you write beautiful pieces for New Zealand Geographic as well as edit um, the magazine. Um, at the ripe old age of stupidly young, I would say, <laughs> jealously. Um, <laughs> what is it that makes you a good writer? How much is instinct, nous, how much is training, how much is life experience? I've spent a lot of time writing. I started when I was probably 11 or 12. I was writing, was determined to become a science fiction novelist. I've been writing fiction for a stupidly long time, so I have. Le- it's led me to the opinion that it's a hundred percent practice. How many words you've done once you've once you've written uh, a million words, then then you maybe start to write some good words. But it's it's just about ease with language. And writers are people who write, aren't they? Not people who talk about writing or plan <laughs> to write. But you you just have to do it. 
but I think my I think coming from fiction and uh, having studied that and been doing that for a long time has really helped my feature writing because it, it's it's taught me what a story is and what characters are and I think those as well as reporting are the main, are the main characteristics of feature writing so it's really served me well even though I don't write fiction anymore I find science facts much more weird and interesting than anything I could come up with on my own. Your story on the um, on the great southern Easter bunny shoot for New Zealand Geographic, um, I mean, it does many things, that story, but I, I think it's a really good example of the use of dialogue or the use of quotes within a story. And I wonder if, um, you know, when you spend a few days with people, as you would have done for that story, chatting to them over many hours, um, there's, there's really an art in deciding what to leave out, isn't there, as well as what to put in. I'm very much a, um, I'll cut my stories ruthlessly. Um, you start off with everything you want to put in that you think is marvellous, and then you cut and cut and cut because you realise that you have two great lines from this great person who you really liked, but they both have the same function of the story and you can only keep one. But in, in that instance, it was um, a real, I felt a real responsibility to the people that I was with who were all great people who completely make sense as people and the types of people that are often pilloried or mocked, especially by urban New Zealanders. And I wanted to show them as um, as, as logical people. Do you know what I mean in terms of being able to, uh, making logical decisions for the environment that they're in? I think it's a, an example of how feature writing can give context to a thing such as hunting that is really lost in any news story about the great East Bunny Hunt is about how shameful it is that we kill so many rabbits and it completely misses out this side about the destructiveness of rabbits and how they ruin people's lives and properties and land and environment, income, all of these things. I learned more from that story about the world of farmers and shooting than I learned from a thousand press releases. Hmm. Actually, I've read a thousand press releases. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Simon, when I asked you to identify some stories that you thought were fine examples of the form, you pointed us towards Eyes Wide Shut, which is John Stevenson's story uh, about the SAS in Afghanistan, a few years old now, that piece, but still with, you know, echoes... um, Coming coming down the line. Um, You published it at Metro when you were um, editor there and you said it was the hardest story you've ever (laughs) brought to print. Right, so that was 2011. I'd been editor of Metro for a year at that point and John brought me the story. Um, And um, John is uh, an extraordinarily uh, assiduous researcher, uh, very meticulous, um, and also has had a long history of like his friend Nicky Hager, uh, battling with the defence forces and the government of the day uh, to get information and to be taken seriously and to not be spied on and to you know to basically manage their lives through the um, uh, apparatus of the state that is out to stop them. Now, so John is very careful uh, about his sources uh, and very careful about his information and who who he'll give it to. So part of the problem was for me as the editor, he wasn't going to show me everything. <laughs> um, so um, there, I had to take some stuff on trust mm-hmm. um, and I had to work out methods of w- deciding yes, this um, this must be true, you know, this I can check, um, what, what the processes would be, and they were quite complicated. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing was he had a big story to tell, and his first draft was 16,000 words. 
Yeah, to put that in context, if you pick up a 300-page novel, that's about 100,000 words. So John's well on the way to, you know, the first part of a big book, really. Mm -hmm. Um, We couldn't publish 16,000 words on on this in Metro. You can do that. Andrew O'Hagan in the London Review of Books a couple of years ago um, had the whole issue turned over to his investigation of the Grenfell Fire in London. If you've got a story that's that big and that shocking, you can sometimes do it. I judged that John's wasn't quite that, but was nevertheless very important because it was a story about our troops in Afghanistan breaking the Geneva Convention uh, and lying about it and having the Defence Force cover it up for them. Um, So it was a very important story to tell. So we had to work through uh, this process of how do we verify. Uh, We're not going to the government to tell them we're going to do the story. We're not going to get them to comment because they will find ways to shut us down if we do that. Uh, We're convinced of that. Um, and how do we verify? How do we get it down to a manageable length? Um, and how do we manage through that whole process? And in the end, we published 8,600. It's the biggest story I think Metro had published for a very long time. Uh, and it lifted the lid uh, explosively on, on the whole operation. Uh, and the story itself went on to win uh, awards here and overseas, which I'm very proud of. Uh, but it was a battle to knock it into a shape that would make it readable. John's a good storyteller but uh, it had to be half that length and that was that was quite a struggle. Uh, a lot of pressure, I imagine, on you to do that because as you say, some of that stuff you had to take on trust, you had to believe. It's your you know, neck yeah. on the line if, if it's wrong, if it's proved to be That's right. untrue. It, it was absolutely think, going yeah. to be. They were going to be there was, there was going to put the company in serious trouble and I went to my boss at the time and I said what we were doing and to his enormous credit, I always thank him for this, he said... Oh, shit. And then he said, but I guess we have to publish. And I went with that. And I didn't keep him in the loop. He didn't ask to be. I he I asked him to trust me as editor. And um, I didn't want to be getting him to second guess everything all the time. Um, so we had to work, I had to work through that process too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how did you know that that story was worth the work that it would have taken to get to print? How did you... I mean, because it could have perhaps not been. It could well, have been. OK, I think it's a story about lives lost, um, but it's also a story that goes to the heart of who we are as a democratic society. Um, it goes to our own values. Um, and there are uh, those stories, I think, are always worth putting into print. Um, what we uphold when we send troops to war, um, why we're doing it, um, and what our values are as a society, both in the way in which they behave in terms of the international conventions, but the way in which we as a society deal with what they do, how we uh, reflect on it, how we understand it, those things are critical to who we are. And so that made the story important for me. So to your own work, Simon, you you wrote a piece on the controversial Canadian psychologist Jordan (laughs) Peterson, uh, a thin man on a hot night, as you describe him so wonderfully. Talk me through a profile piece like this. How hard is it to get a character like him down on paper to try and explain him to readers in a way that isn't done in his you know, tweets yeah. or, or the news stories. Yeah, because he's, he's one of the uh, world's, or was, um, one of the world's best uh, self-presenters of his own image, um, enormous following. Uh, he's been very ill and dropped off the radar now, um, but uh, because he was so in charge of his own 
presentation, um, it, it is quite tricky to get through. I did two things with him. I went to his Auckland Town Hall meeting, which was pretty full, one uh, at night, and then the next morning I interviewed him uh, for a video. Uh, so I didn't get to talk to him till the next day. So, um, you know, it was kind of the, the other way around in a sense from what you might do. Um, but for the Town Hall story, that was a very good example for me of the pleasure of sitting in a room. Yeah, it was a big room, <laughs> and he sat there on this kind of throne uh, in the middle of the stage, downstage, and talked and wandered around and stuff, and burst into tears telling his stories and did his extraordinarily dramatic thing, and I kind of really reported it. Um, I had done a lot of reading about him, I'd watched him, um, I'd watched videos of him, done all that stuff, um, but I just reported what he was doing and the the subtext of what he was doing, how how he was behaving on stage to to reinforce and point in certain directions and all of that. And I, I've, I thought the job here is to do a close character study by sitting and watching and saying what you can see. And so that's what I did. Uh, th- there is a lot of sort of well-articulated wisdom in this from you um, <laughs> a lot of insight into I'd the I'd like hum- to think it wasn't from him actually because yeah. I think he's a charlatan you know? <laughs> but, you know a lot of insight into the human condition a lot of you know very well observed um, you know sentences within that piece and I, I wonder if you could have written that a piece like that when you were in say your early 20s you know without that sort of combined kind of life experience to be able to look at a guy like that and go he's saying this but actually uh, I'm sure that's true you you know you your your understanding of what's going on around you changes as you get older I'm not sure you necessarily get wiser of course I would like to think you do <laughs> I'd like to think I do yeah but you uh, but there's an awful lot of evidence that people don't get wiser; they get more set in their ways and less able to understand things. So, who knows? Um, but yes, you can. With a piece like that, you can probably tell roughly the age of the author in a way that you can't always. Um, but certainly, the, um, I wasn't writing that as a as a young man um, who he was trying to impress because that's his target group. Mm-hmm. I wasn't mm-hmm. writing from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that makes me think that it's important sometimes if you were a commissioning editor that you're sending the right reporter yes. to the right story. Would that be true, Rebecca? I was just about to say that. It's about matching the right person in the sense of whose eyes is it most useful to see this through? Who's going to provide the most, um, the best interpretive capacity to the reader? Um, because the reader is often in, in, in New Zealand Geographic, um, we really prioritise that, that first person encounter. Whose eyes are yeah. we going to see it through? Sometimes you want someone to go in who has no understanding and has distance because that's how you want to interpret or view something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Coming back to your question, Sonia, about first person, the one probably the piece that I've done that's most first person is I wrote a piece for North and South about adoption, but it was told through the experience of finding a sister I didn't know about, both of us adopted. And it was actually probably the hardest piece I've written because it, I had to put myself into the story. There was no other option. And weird, where to draw the line in terms of how much I disclosed about that experience, but more particularly about um, other family members. Um, you know, my adoptive parents, my birth parents, and in the end, I realised I could only tell my experience. Um, I had to touch on some aspects of their lives, but it was only my experience that I could talk about. 
and it, I had to sit on it for probably a good 18 months, two years before I could actually get it down in the way that I felt comfortable with. Um, so yeah, those real deeply personal stories are quite a different, quite a different beast um, to approach. And it was probably a good exercise because often I'm asking people to put some really quite um, hard stuff uh, out there or certain aspects of their lives that are quite um, intimate in some respects. And it was a good exercise for me to have to, to do that and reveal myself um, and know what it's like to put yourself on the line, I guess. Uh, but yeah, it's a different experience, totally. It always amazes me um, <coughs> how generous people are with giving you information as, as reporters and that you, because you are asking them to give a lot and, and to do so publicly and people are willing, are willing to do it a lot of the time. I think that's true. Um, it's an unfortunate thing that happens. A lot of people feel obliged to talk to the press, and they shouldn't. You know, <laughs> um, but it's good. But for us, it's good that they do. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, so we have been talking for a while now, and we're going to need to to wrap things up. But but just before we do, I wonder if we could talk for a moment about the state of of health or otherwise of of feature writing in this country at the moment. What hopes or, or fears do you have for the form, Rebecca? I have a few fears, um, and that's that some of the avenues where um, new feature writers used to, I suppose, emerge um, don't seem to be being filled with new feature writers at the moment. And when I look around, I'm not seeing very many young people who are embarking on the form, um, telling stories about themselves or their own communities or there doesn't seem to be a full pipeline, um, if that makes sense. And that, that terrifies me a little bit. And I go around um, trying to tell people, here's this really great thing you can do, and it's really cool, and you will make not very much money in the course of your life, but it's it's huge privilege and it's fun. And it doesn't feel like a very good sell to people in a way. It's hard to communicate uh, about it. Yeah, Aaron, how, how do you see things? Can can magazines, can newspapers, and obviously, you know, people like Radio New Zealand are publishing this stuff now, but can those media organisations continue to afford to do so? Because features take a lot longer to get out than a, than a quickly turned around news story. Um, and although I know, you know, no one's buying houses on Paratide Drive by, by being a feature writer, they are expensive compared to, say, whipping out a few news stories. Yeah, yeah that's why I live and live in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, the pipeline that um, Rebecca talks about, I mean, I, as I mentioned, I had, it was very fortunate to have a sub-editor who um, was very... I guess influential in, in me learning the ropes. Um, I've learned from other people, other writers, obviously. Um, but yeah, I do have a concern. There's not those entry level positions. I mean, there was a feature writer at Manawatu Standard, and I don't think that position um, exists anymore. Um, I nearly got a job at North and South like 15 years ago, and I've never seen a, another job advertised there. Mm. Um, you know, and then of course Bowers um, being just kind of falling over overnight. Um, I don't know what that means. I mean, some of those magazines are being resurrected, but I've been involved with magazine, Mana magazine that fell over, got resurrected and then fell over again. And it's, um, it's always hard to, to uh, recreate a magazine once it's taken a knock like that. 
Um, but yeah, I one thing that I will observe is that um, I mean, you know, I'm of mixed race. I'm Maori, and uh, you know, there's a lot of Maori journalists for some reason end up in television or broadcasting, and I feel a little bit. Um, you know, there's Leonie Hayden as, as a writer that I admire. Um, there's some Māori journalists coming through in some of the newspapers. But in terms of print, um, you know, Māori journalists are thin on the ground anyway. Um, in terms of feature writing, we're kind of like this, we're a bit like the Huya. We're sort of an endangered species or something. Um, and, yeah, and that, that bothers me because it, it means that some of those stories don't get told in this way. Um, and, you know, I, I think these, our audience is becoming, the general media audience is becoming more um, segmented or something. Um, and, yeah, it, it does, yeah, it bothers me a little bit that we, what's, what's around the corner. I mean, I, I've always thought that feature writing is perfectly suited to online because you, you don't have the cost of, um, you know, paper and ink. Um, and it doesn't really matter um, how, you know, how long is a piece of string. It doesn't matter online. Mm. It's and got yet, a longer life too, hasn't it? It could yeah. be shared has, two yeah. years later and, and, and read again. Mm. Yeah, but the business model uh, is just not really, I can't see... Yeah, I mean, New Zealand Geographic, I have to say, is doing a fantastic job with their business model because it's all very well to talk about the products. It's, you've got to have the business model sitting under it to make it sustainable. There are, I, I think there are two contradictory things happening in, in media in relation to all this. One of them is that the business models, all of them are broken. I, I don't know that anyone really knows that they are secure in their future at working as a journalist today. Um, I don't know that there are any real models that, that the companies are confident are going to be able to continue. So there are really big issues to face there. But the other side of it is there's an awful lot of really good journalism going on and a lot of that is feature writing. And um, it appears in places like New Zealand Geographic and will appear again in The Listener and North and South and, and elsewhere um, and in some of the papers, uh, but also online. You're absolutely right. And there are outlets. So if people want to do this... Um, it is it is possible, and you won't be able to make a living out of it straight away, perhaps. But if you want to do it, um, it's a terribly rewarding activity to write features about the world around you um, in a way that explores them and understands them and reveals them and gives pleasure to, to readers. Fantastic. Well, um, we have to wrap it up there. Although I, I say this every time, but I could talk to you all for <laughs> days um, on this on this matter. Um, hey, thank you so much to all our guests today: uh, Aaron Smale, Rebecca White, and Simon Wilson. Um, we've talked about a lot of great writing today. Uh, don't worry if you've missed some of the names. We'll put up their titles uh, on our Facebook page and links to where you can read them. So do follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at How to Love Podcast. Uh, thanks. So much everyone for joining us and thank you thank you keep up the good work how to love is made with the help of the matatui foundation and the university of auckland it is a bookland production recorded and engineered by tim page at the faculty of arts